Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Green Majority from CIUT in Toronto. The Green Majority is a platform for informed environmental dissent. And Stefan will be uh, speaking with Fatima Syed yep. later on in the program. Covering the things to look forward to in climate uh, Canada and worldwide. And uh, now we are again to going to ask the question, are we going to stop destroying ourselves? Armed white supremacist fascists in the United States are only getting bolder in their efforts to incite another civil war or armed coup uh, for the apparent sake of an ill-defined mythical golden land of supreme masculinity where white men can do whatever they like and everyone else is silenced. Or more probably, the white insurrectionists have no clear vision of their endgame and are merely waving their glorious biceps in anger, fear, and despair at their own dwindling social power, having been lied to constantly by the president and his media cronies, and hung out to dry by decades of a corporate globalism that has abandoned workers for the interests of the rarefied rich. Even so, we can't count out the role of a blinkered need to assert violent dominance for the sake of dominance itself, a plain feeling of being entitled to power at any cost, and one that is forgetful of any notion of shared humanity. It's a totalitarian instinct to lie, brutalize, and oppress, and it's here, and it's real, and it's growing, and in Canada and the United States, we have as leaders Mr. Justin Trudeau and Mr. Joe Biden, neither of whom seem ready to take any steps against the economic establishment that has brought us here. The white fascist movement includes top lawmakers, law enforcement officers, and members of the military. U.S. Congress members are afraid of being attacked or sold out by their own colleagues. Heavily armed, angry white men with weapons training are planning demonstrations across the United States starting tomorrow, the 16th of January, to stop Joe Biden from becoming the next president. They have been cultivated by Donald Trump for years and are being supported by a huge number of top Republicans. One of these violent groups is, of course, the Proud Boys, whom the Premier of Ontario, Mr. Doug Ford, has been friendly with. Big oil companies like Chevron and Exxon, and members of the American Petroleum Institute, of course, have bankrolled Republican politicians for years, many of whom are now supporting the violent overthrow of any vestige of American democracy. These companies should therefore commit to no longer giving money to fascists if they wish to pretend to do good on this planet. They should also stop producing oil if they wish to help avert the ecological cataclysms that will continue to destabilize life, to give apparent legitimacy to authoritarian measures, and to stoke a racist ecofascism that could far too easily lead to more genocide. As Brian Kahn reminds us for Earther, quote, the insurrection on January 6th and law enforcement's frail response are eerily similar to what happened this summer when right-wing militias spread conspiracies about wildfires in Oregon. In that case, extremists sowed confusion to assert control over regions engulfed in smoke, setting up armed checkpoints and threatening journalists. Law enforcement turned a blind eye, and in the case of one sheriff, even briefed extremists. As Marion Ice Hegler wrote for the same publication, about Hurricane Katrina, quote, 
Reports of vigilantes all over New Orleans that organized in the wake of the storm to brazenly and cravenly shoot to kill looters, which had become the term du jour for black people trying to survive in a city, left shattered after one of the deadliest storms to ever make landfall in the U.S. These ragtag, roughshod, heavily armed groups were openly lauded by the media and all but sanctioned by the state as a logical and even necessary response to the quote-unquote lawlessness that had overtaken the state and the region. Some groups organized from neighborhood watches to mobs to militias. Some of them relished the opportunity to shoot black people with impunity, seeing the chaos as the perfect opportunity to wage what they thought was a long-overdue race war. Here in Canada, we have only to look at the racist violence recently waged against indigenous Mi'kmaq fishers on the East Coast, and the Proud Boys who intimidated a Mi'kmaq ceremony in 2017 to get a glimpse of what could become of us in a worsening ecological crisis if we fail to do the collective work of transforming an economy that is sucking the life out of the natural world and not treating workers like human beings, and the individual work of discovering what it means to be a human being. Back in October, uh, Emily Atkin, in her newsletter, Heated, I think in some ways, foresaw this connection between Proud Boys and what she refers to as petro-masculinity. In the article, she cites a range of research that points to the fact that there is this subset of masculinity that can be directly tied to environmental destruction. This probably doesn't come as a huge surprise to most of you, as you can definitely imagine the guy who thinks caring about the environment is feminine and therefore should be demeaned. And studies have sort of borne this out. There's a study out there that has shown that men avoid recycling because they perceive environmentalism as feminine. They don't, re- they don't carry recyclable grocery bags because apparently carrying a bag around is an assault on your manhood. A third study showed that climate deniers lean heavily male, which it, the mad Facebook posts on our mad Facebook comments on our own uh, Facebook posts definitely bear out as, as a reality. And most recently, the New Republic published an article called The Misogyny of Climate Deniers that cited a research indicating that climate deniers were not really worried about losing a livable planet, but instead, quote, a certain kind of modern industrial society built and dominated by by their form of masculinity, end quote. And, you know, there's, of course, an entire philosophic branch of thinking, ecofeminism, that ties toxic masculinity to environmental destruction. But I think what Atkin is examining here is a finer point on the issue that directly ties the acts of last Wednesday and white nationalism in general to you know, climate and climate destruction. Because really, if you dive into the ideology of the Proud Boys, who were both there last Wednesday uh, and were started, uh, one of their co-founders is Canadian, so is directly tied to the work we have to do here in Canada as well. Their oath includes a sentence that states, I am a proud Western chauvinist, and I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world, end quote. And so you can see how directly tied these two worlds are. And, you know, last week we, we began the show 
uh, on the heels of the insurrection. And I think you heard our sort of honest confusion of that moment. This week, you hear us on the heels of Trump's second impeachment by Congress. It will go to the Senate next week, making him the first president ever to be impeached twice. But as we can, but but I think what we should consider most directly is what Emily Atkins' voice is saying in this piece, which is that climate justice cannot be won without tackling the three heads of white supremacism, toxic masculinity, and colonialism, and the one thing that combines all three, which is Western chauvinism. There's a contradiction um, that I'm kind of just now trying to work it in my head, and it's because... um, Obviously, we've known for for quite some time that like the typical climate denier is a reasonably affluent white man in the West. Um, pretty basic. <laughs> Everybody knows that it's it's the average conservative voter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I remember when I was actually taking a course in ecofeminism um, when I was doing my undergrad and and sort of some of the research I was doing into that that sort of issue area of like what makes a climate denier um, and why we do find they're often reasonably affluent white men. And and one of the things that at least a lot of the research then pointed to is the idea that um, a lot of these men deny the fact of climate change because for the most part, um, these are men who are relatively uh, or insulated from risk. Um, They're not tied to uh, sort of the risk of, of exposure to the elements as much. Um, they have a reasonable degree of affluence. So just by the very nature of having money, they're, they're, they're less at risk to a lot of things. And then, and then the issue of, of their, of, this is a weird way to use the word manhood, but their manhood, um, insulates them from a lot of social sort of, um, social risk in a way that women often aren't. Women often are put in situations where they do see the benefit of community. They do see the benefit of sort of relying on one another and building each other up and helping each other just by nature of the fact that they have been systemically oppressed over centuries and across many different cultures. Um, And that in many cultures, women um, are often designated roles that put them closest to quote unquote nature. Um, so if based off of that sort of theory that I, that I really sort of, um, come to understand as truth that men are often climate deniers because they're insulated from risk and insulated from fear, um, then why is it that I feel that these men, these sort of petro-masculine chauvinists are so imbued with fear? Like it, like you can, you can see what happened last week and the only, the only thing that makes sense is that this was a group of people that are intensely driven by fear and anger um, to do that kind of violence. And that's sort of something I'm kind of trying to grapple with right now um, is that if these men are so insulated from risk, why is it that they fear so much? I think when you don't have any real problems, you make them up. When your inherent thing is, I want to be mad at something, you will start making up boogeymen to fight. Oddly enough, of all things, I heard that criticism made of Gilmore Girls earlier today. Someone was saying that the only drama in that show is caused by the people themselves because they're so privileged. So uh, not that that makes any sense, but it's just like, huh, I've heard that thought today that people cause their own... People generate their own drama because they're so privileged. And it was in reference to 
Gilmore Girls. Toxic Masculinity and Gilmore Girls. There is at least one PhD out there that will get to the bottom of this. And I also think part of it has to do with this loss of 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 what they consider rightful place, right? Like that's really what the, you know, that's, that's what the Proud Boys are saying. You know, it's this concept of like, we built this, we get to run this, which again, they did not build this. Uh, but speaking of conspiracies, basically, let's move on. 2020 was the joint hottest year ever on record, along with 2016, which was made warmer by an El Nino. The average global temperature last year was 1.25 degrees Celsius, a quarter of a degree lower than the threshold of disastrously unpredictable instability. The United States alone suffered a record $95 billion in climate-related disaster damages. Climate-fueled flooding has has already made parts of Bangladesh unlivable. Unbelievably large piles of plastic trash are now washing up annually in Bali. Starving birds are falling from the sky. And still, conservative politicians like uh, Canadian premiers Jason Kenney and Doug Ford are rewarded for cynically pretending that environmental regulations, by their very nature, harm the average person. This is made possible in part by the political left, who are the ones typically bringing in such regulation, having become associated with ineffectual programs. As Walden Bellow wrote for Foreign Policy in Focus last year, quote, The center-left's thoroughgoing compromise with neoliberalism in the North, along with progressive parties and states going along with, if not actively adopting, neoliberal measures in the South, tarnished the progressive spectrum as a whole. Even though it was from the non-mainstream, non-state left that the critique of neoliberalism and globalization initially issued, in the 1990s and 2000s. This void of popular progressivism has also given rise to conspiracy theorists on the left and right. Naomi Klein, for instance, recently wrote for The Intercept about how her concept of the shock doctrine is now being used in an online conspiracy freakout from both sides of the political spectrum. The term shock doctrine, quote, describes the many ways that elites try to harness deep disasters to push through policies that further enrich the already wealthy and restrict democratic liberties. Klein highlights the way that popular conservative commentators are now trying to link the Green New Deal with the World Economic Forum's Davos Summit push for what it calls the Great Reset, by which global corporate players are trying to brand themselves as saving the world through turning a profit off the global ecological crisis. The point is that if sustainability at large can be linked with the richest people in the world, any attempt to bring in a green economy can be made to look like a power grab by the wealthy. Going back to Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta, Klein points out that he recently argued in an online question-and-answer session that the Great Reset is a left-wing and even socialist attempt to take advantage of the pandemic, even though it's coming from the wealthiest capitalists on the globe. Afterwards, right-wingers online hailed him as rejecting the New World Order. Such developments allow us to see how environmental programs that stop stop short of major economic change can help fuel a backlash against the very idea of environmental reform. We could obviously spend a whole episode or series uh, talking about conspiracy theories. Um, 
and like sort of how they play into current events tied to COVID and Trump's support base. But I think one of the more interesting conversations that I've heard lately is sort of about this, um, I guess, like pan political um, prevalence of conspiracy theory lately. And and oddly enough, I'm, I'm going to point people to a different podcast. One of those conversations is happening on a podcast called um, Conspirituality uh, that sort of specifically talks about the ties between conspiracy theory trends in those communities online and the sort of quote unquote wellness community or um, like like maybe what people used to think of as like the yoga community, the new age community. Um, because that's a community which tends to span the political the political spectrum. Uh, you have like leftist West Coast hippies who are just as likely to be anti-vax as sort of like right wing Infowars Alex Jones fan types. Um, and it's sort of within this weird political hodgepodge that we find sort of the like the eco-fascist figure um, who was um, unsurprisingly um, on display in Washington last week. Uh, I, not that I love saying his name, but just for informational purposes, he was a ding dong named Jake Angeli, I believe, self-identified as a Q shaman. Uh, I'm assuming that's short for QAnon shaman. Um, and he was in news this week because up until maybe yesterday or today, um, he was refusing to eat any food in jail um, because they hadn't because it wasn't organic. Um, the jail has since provided him with full organic meals which is problematic in and of itself because they'll acquiesce to, to the needs of a white guy, but not the, um, the religious needs or, or, or meal restrictions of anybody else. But anyway, I bring this up, not because I'm stoked to keep talking about the violence in Washington, but really just to highlight that um, what we see in this sort of conspiracy community um, is sort of not the birth, but like the, the, the exposure of the eco-fascists that we have been worrying about for so long and that this eco-fascist figure is in fact here and not all that uncommon. Um, and I guess just sort of not warning that feels fear mongering, but just sort of highlighting the fact that, um, don't think that doing yoga or shopping at like a granola health food store or bike commuting precludes someone from thinking that the solution to rampant climate change is Malthusian population control or like a colonial manifest destiny notion of returning to the land to a pristine wilderness. Um, digging into the sort of why of this phenomenon would involve a ton of time. And to be honest, I think it, it could warrant some space on a future episode because Unfortunately, it's not as simple as some environmentalists trust in science and some environmentalists reject science because there are there are truly legitimate critiques of, for instance, like Western ecosystem management practices and the lack of understanding that they often have of like traditional ecological knowledge offered by um, indigenous peoples of a given land or territory. Um, but then at the same time, we have like rampant perversion of Eastern and traditional knowledges when it comes to sort of the white wellness and environmentalist community. Um, so yeah, of course I don't have any sort of like summarizing thesis here, but just sort of thoughts that were coming to my mind when I was sort of thinking about this story. It's interesting to see the, the perversion, I think, of, you know, you, you get something like uh, that we should treat eating right and eating eating organic or or even just, you know, more local or just like or eating more whole foods as as a truly uh, not I say as a, not like there's the idea of like treating it like medicine 
which is like in some ways like valuable thought process. Like you definitely eating better foods, understanding the impacts that different foods have can definitely make you feel a lot better. But then there's also like and and so like a lot of there's a whole movement there that's super interesting and should be looked into because like we definitely live in a world that overprescribes drugs to things that we could definitely solve, you know, through other other means. At the same time, those people also are, are like are dangerously careen into say anti-vaccine movements that suddenly become super dangerous and and to parse those out is really very hard you know like every like it is we get to the point of so often you know there are people who have certain sets of beliefs that sort of dovetail into one another and the and unfortunately especially in the natural health space you can see that careening further into into the idea that you know bill gates is trying to get inject you with with uh with their with a needle to get a uh, implant in your brain somehow which is very bad and not true but that comes with but 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 they're leading into a conversation is like we should be eating better and not processing our food so much which is super true and would make us much better and and so I think when when you get into any of these spaces, you know, I think the the key really I think is, you know, question everything, right? Like it, if you get into these spaces, understand the first view, and if you agree with them on one thing, that does not necessarily mean they should agree on the next three or four things. I recently read an article that said that engineers are have a proclivity to become terrorists. Which it, like there's a there's a there's a study out there that basically shows that more engineers uh, as a job profession move into uh, extremist extremism specifically, and I th and part of that I think is that engineering is a field that is constantly told they're right about everything, and you can easily see that if you're told because it's very hard. Like no no disrespect to any engineers out there, it's a very hard profession, and you have to know a lot of things. But it doesn't mean you know everything. And the idea that you, if you're spending your entire life being told you know everything or that you are the smartest person in the class, you will assume, assume that all of your positions are the smartest person in the class, which then means you it's very hard to de-radicalize you or you're not ch doing your internal checks, checks to see if you're letting yourself slip down these different fronts. And so... I think, yeah, like, again, I don't know if there's, I don't also don't have really a thesis here, except for the fact that, like, if you agree with someone on one thing and you do your research and they're right, do not necessarily take the next thing they say as true, because there's no guarantee on that. Something that sort of encapsulates it for me is that I often find um, there's a there's a large sort of, again, I'm going to. I'm going to rag on like white, white women, basically in the wellness community who, who stay away from GMOs. And it's not that I don't necessarily think that people should be skeptical of GMOs, but if, if people were to read or listen to uh, information put out by Vandana Shiva, who's like an incredible scientist and, and thinker. Um, and she talks about how GMOs are potentially dangerous because it, it, it essentially uh, requires the commodification of life. And that's why we should be questioning and pushing back against it. Not necessarily because your GMO tomato is any worse than a regular tomato at the grocery store. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace.
Joe Biden's climate team recently said that it underestimated the extent to which Trump systematically undermined any ability for the U.S. government to address climate change, meaning they have been uh, meaning they have even more rebuilding to do than they thought they did. It is therefore even better news that Trump's attempt at selling land in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge has failed quite spectacularly, in that the first lease sale of the public land last week only saw two tiny oil companies take part. This was in part caused by activist campaigns for fossil fuel divestment, which gained pledges in 2020 that will eventually suck close to a trillion dollars out of the sector. Exxon has joined most other major Western oil companies in finally deciding to disclose data on the emissions caused by the people who use the oil they sell. Germany is continuing its effort to greatly reduce global nitrous oxide emissions and could, within the next four years, succeed in reducing atmospheric greenhouse gases equivalent to the annual emissions of 45 million cars. The UK recently saw half of all its electricity needs powered by wind alone, thanks to a holiday storm. A UK court recently ruled that a nine-year-old girl who died in 2013 was killed in part by air pollution, making her the first person in the world to have been officially declared as having air pollution as a partial cause of death. Finally, it appears that there may be a shifting consensus within the climate science community that there isn't actually that much warming baked into the system. And if we bring CO2 down to net zero, the climate will actually stabilize within 20 years. Bob Berwin reports for Inside Climate News, quote, the widespread idea that decades or even centuries of of additional warming are already baked into the system, as suggested by previous IPCC reports, were based on an unfortunate misunderstanding of experiments done with climate models that never assumed zero emissions. But I have no idea what this means for tipping points or feedback loops, and therefore I have no idea what this means for the possibility of runaway global warming. Before the show began, we were talking about this question of what they even mean by net zero in that last piece, because as we've discussed in the show previously, net zero is an accounting term, not a reality term. Yes, you could argue that massive growth in trees and other and, and, and vegetation and a dramatic improvement of ocean health could go in ways to act as carbon sinks, which could help us get there. But net zero that is actually not redu- not increasing any extra th- any extra carbon either means there is no fossil fuels being burned or it means we're actively removing fossil fuels from the air or capturing all emissions from all fossil fuel productions so those are the only ways this works yes net zero in a world planetary existence would be great, but it, it relies currently on technology that doesn't exist, or relies very, very heavily on electrifying almost everything and then capturing the last set of emissions from the couple places that you can't do. But we that would be no flights. We don't have any way to capture that emissions unless we have these giant fans pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, which is right now the closest we have to to that kind of thing. There is no consistent definition of net zero. And that's one of the other issues here is that every country has a different definition. Every think tank has a different definition of what net zero constitutes and what constitutes um, carbon capture and storage and sequestration. 
So like, yeah, this is theoretically great news that if we get to net zero, CO2 in the atmosphere will stabilize and we'll be okay. But A, we don't know that that's actually ever going to happen. And, and B, what does it mean for that to happen? I'm jumping back up to uh, something David mentioned earlier, which was Joe Biden's climate team recently saying that it uh, underestimated the extent to which Trump um, undermined an ability for the U.S. government to address climate change. And what that immediately made me think of is um, is a New York Times tracker that I think we've referenced several times on the show over the last four years. Um, and it's this really great tool where they they lay out all of um, Trump's uh, regulatory rollbacks as they pertain to environment and, and climate. Um, what it specifies is that there are 104 total rollbacks, 84 of which have been completed, 20 of which are in progress across a whole bunch of different um, sort of environmental sectors. So like air pollution, extraction, animals and water pollution and stuff like that. And it's from there that you can sort of dig into this idea that, that the damage has been really severe and, and we can see it on display. Because collectively, these rollbacks and other policy changes, like revoking California's ability to set its own tailpipe emission standards, are expected to result in an additional 1.8 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by 2035, which, to put in perspective, is more than the combined uh, emissions of Germany, Britain, and Canada for one year. So what we hear from Biden's staff is that it's not going to be super quick or easy to reverse this damage. And, and I think there's this misconception that because Congress was so ineffective for so long, that damage wasn't really done. But at the regulatory level, this this really isn't the case, because by putting the right or, or wrong people in positions of power, Trump was really, really effective at weakening progressive regulations and policy across the board. So, I mean, we know what this looks like from a climate standpoint, because we can see the rollbacks he he, he implemented or rather his staff implemented at the EPA, for instance, but I can only imagine what this damage must look like when it comes to other files like immigration or health or housing or education. Um, so yeah, just because um, Congress was hamstrung doesn't mean a lot of damage wasn't wasn't put in place. And, and again, I don't know how much of this is reversible, no yeah. matter how great Biden's team is. Yeah, I think that is going to be one of the great challenges of a lot of the work, you know, being done, not that we won't see as much, you know, of trying to rebuild, you know, the EPA has been entirely gutted to the point where they just fired a subset of people who were hired on, and they basically against all regulations just posted a bunch of climate denial on their website only to get fired and then immediately turned around, went to Fox News and claimed they were being silenced unfairly because they were speaking the truth, quote unquote, and they were hacks from the beginning. Right. And so all of this is 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 depressing. So I'm going to end on one positive note. In the interview with Fatima, we actually speak a little bit about. Trump's failure to sell the Arctic wildlife, wildlife Refuge, which includes unquestionably huge props, I guess is the closest word I got, to the divestment movement. Because the divestment movement, I think, has always been about eroding the social license of this work. And the fact that, you know, six major banks, I believe it was, all, all basically decided they would not fund Arctic drilling for oil and a lot of these other things that sort of led to this complete failure. Like, this was a thing that people were very scared about. They were scared that all of this would get, this pristine land would get destroyed uh, by drilling because of the fact they're selling it off, like, 10 days before they lost power. But the fact that it was, the sale was such a failure is a direct a direct indication of how powerful the attempts to remove social licenses from oil companies and extractive industries has become. And so that, I think, is where that's my positive uh, take on for the day.
Uh, we only get one, I think. Yeah, yeah, we've hit our quota. So it's all downhill from here, folks. Enjoy the rest of the hour. Continuing from last week, uh, we had a localized question of, you know, what should we be paying attention to in 2021? And in this week, we're, we're jumping that to a more national, international level with Fatima Sayed. Welcome, Fatima. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me back. Always, always a pleasure. This is the section where, we, where you get to tell us all of the things that we might want to pay attention to or know. What should we be paying attention to in Canada and around the world? Okay, so I did some research for this and I was, um, I surprised myself because there was actually a lot of positive climate news in 2020. Can you imagine positive news in 2020? I mean, there were, like, I think we covered three things. Somewhere in July, something positive happened, I swear. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a recap because these are all things that were started in 2020 that I think we should be paying attention to in the new year despite the fact that the pandemic hasn't over and we haven't gotten the breather that the world promised us or that we thought the world promised us. So here we go. It's going to be a vomit of information. Yes, disasters got worse in 2020. We had tons of wildfires and floods and and so forth. But we can actually remember 2020 as the year that the world started to reverse centuries of damage to the climate. Just before the start of the year, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, I'm so sorry, announced a new Green Deal, which would go on to become the centerpiece of the European Union's economic recovery plan. 2020 itself started with a bang in January when BlackRock added its $7 trillion heft to the Climate Action 100+, an investor coalition that pushes companies to reduce their greenhouse gases. Several more of the largest global economies, including China, which is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than any other country in the world, also came out with net zero pledges. This is still 2020, by the way. Um, while oil and gas prices plunge due to the pandemic, Next Era Energy Inc., the world's largest supplier of wind power, overtook ExxonMobil Corp. and Chevron Corporation to become the world's most valuable energy company bar none. Meanwhile, the share price of Exxon, one of the world's most valuable company of any kind, fell so far that it got booted out of the Dow Jones industrial average of major U.S. corporations. Every major American bank promised to stop funding uh, Arctic drilling. Lloyd's of London, the world's largest insurance market, said it would stop covering coal, oil sands, and Arctic drilling projects by 2030. In October 2020, the International Energy Agency, an intergovernmental organization, concluded that the best solar power schemes now offer, quote, the cheapest source of electricity in history. That is huge. Um, Around the world, New Zealand and the United Kingdom became the first countries to say they'll require companies to disclose their climate risk. And in November, the United States voted to make Joe Biden president, who has made climate change one of his signature issues and has appointed a climate change minister or whatever they call it in the United States. All of that happened in 2020, Stefan. That is major. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing, actually. When you have these massive stories overwhelming everything else, it is actually hard a little bit to to understand those things. 
the one story you, you mentioned there about Arctic drilling, earlier in the episode, we just covered a piece about how that, that action actually led to Trump's failure to sell off some Arctic land because, because they couldn't find investment and it sort of had lost social license. And so we're seeing some of those impacts lead to 2021, but I'm sure there's more. So let's move to, let's move to 2021. Well, look, all of these things were just set in place in 2020. Now we have to see if these all these pledges and these changes are actually followed through and become effective and impactful as promised. So there's a couple of things that we, we should keep an eye out specifically. So number one, in December, amid a bunch of stuff that was happening, Canada's first hydrogen strategy was released. Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan framed it as a way to, quote, transform almost every part of our economy, quote. He said it would position Canada as a world leader in hydrogen production in the coming decades. A lot has been written and said, and I know it's been discussed on this show as well, how effective hydrogen can be if done properly um, as an energy policy. Um, Minister O'Regan said it would create 350,000 jobs yay, and put net zero emissions within reach, also yay. The problem is we don't yet know how much money is being set aside for this. And it was announced in December and it's only January. So hopefully we can follow this through and see what happens. The other big Canadian climate change story is in the courts. There's two big court cases that we're expecting to see and hear more from uh, this year. The first is obviously we're expecting the Supreme Court's decision on the carbon tax. For those of you that follow me on Twitter, I tweeted a lot about the actual hearing, which happened virtually. It was interesting. Three provinces have, you know, challenged it. The Supreme Court, you know, asked some really tough questions of all the lawyers. The decision will be a landmark decision no matter which way it goes. So that can be expected in 2021. The second court decision to follow is uh, a court challenge by seven young people in Ontario who uh, are fighting against the cancellation of cap and trade. And we're just allowed um, in November, actually, for it to proceed further. That's Canadian climate news. And that's already a lot to think about. Richard, do you know when we're expecting a response on the, ta- on the, on the carbon tax? No. Unfortunately, this- no. The Supreme Court has not said anything. And the lawyers that I've been in touch with haven't a clue yet either. So we're just going to have to wait and see. All right. Well, OK, fair enough. So, but it's going to happen. 2021. It's going to yeah. happen. <laughs> we've got we've got a year. They've at least got this year. We've got we've narrowed it down from all time to this year. So we're getting somewhere. So that's Canada. Uh, how about the world? Okay. So right next to Canada is America. We already <laughs> geography lesson 101. It's uh, very important information for everyone. That's like let's be real. Just in case. Yeah, um, you cannot forget that. At the at the start in my in my very you know in in my vomit of pom- positive climate news from 2020 I mentioned that you know America elected President Joe Biden he has promised bold climate action a word he keeps using bold in Canada uh, Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson has said that the two countries can do bold things together uh, like build a zero emissions transportation network running on both sides of the border. Depending on what President Biden actually comes out with, this could be an opportunity for Canada's clean energy sector to grow majorly, um, working with its U.S. counterparts and and sort of making waves in the U.S. industry. The two countries could work really well together if if this becomes a thing and Joe Biden follows through. That's going to be really, really interesting to watch. Continuing on with uh, President Biden's climate pledges, in November, the world's countries will meet in Scotland 
for the 26th UN Climate Summit, which was pushed by a year because of the pandemic. It was meant to happen in 2020. Now it's happening in 2021. It is expected that countries are going to increase their pledges to cut greenhouse gas emissions because, as we've all learned in the last eight years, the Paris climate targets, A, were not achieved by most, and B, were not effective to the levels that we needed. So that will be interesting. And President Biden has said he will rejoin the pact that President Donald Trump left in 2020, actually. <laughs> yeah, the weirdest, that one. <laughs> no, that, that, that's the weirdest fun fact. That's, you know, Trump, I think the day after said we're leaving and it takes him four years. So actually they left the day after the election, I believe. Yeah, the, literally the day after the election. So it's, it's kind of funny. And, you know, if... If the U.S. rejoins, that's going to be major because, as we know, the United States is one of the major um, emissions producing countries in the world. And it's going to show um, commitment to climate if we have the United States joining on board. Moving forward, what else is going on in the world, Stefan? (laughs) That is exactly the question I'm wondering right now. In my preamble of of positive climate news that happened in 2020, I mentioned that a lot of corporations, banks, um, and even markets were were taking climate change more and more seriously, promising to move investment away, um, you know, highlighting more and more uh, clean energy kind of companies. I expect to see more of that in 2021. I expect that if we, uh, a lot of people are going to be following the money, there's a lot of pressure that they... um, and a lot of expectations that they created in 2020 that I hope they will follow through with concrete action and not just pledges. The major of these industries obviously is oil. Will it have a comeback or not? Now, this isn't exactly a climate change story, but it is because if oil comes back, that's going to be that's going to impact you know our efforts to reduce or to mitigate climate change. And if it does not, then that's also going to impact our efforts to mitigate climate change. Projections so far suggest the pandemic has permanently lowered the amount of oil the world will demand in the future. If that change pans out, it will be a significant turning point for an industry that has literally reigned supreme for more than a century and give way to clean energy in, in a way that none of us have ever imagined or seen or foreseen for that matter. In the short term, of course, the oil industry's uh, survival, if I can say survival, depends on how fast vaccines are distributed and how safe that makes people feel about flying again, because we all know that airplanes are a major factor in, in, in their relationship to the oil industry. In the long term, what matters most is whether other countries' economic stimulus plans, or as we colloquially know them as the Build Back Better plans, how these plans will phase out the use of oil and natural gas and coal in some countries over time. As of now, not every country has made pledges to that, but you have to expect building back better to include a reconsideration or at least a discussion about oil. In in other news, in 2020, scientists embarked on the largest Arctic expedition in history. We talk, You said that we talked about this on the show earlier. I mentioned it before as well. Scientists have gathered data and and understood the region um, in a way that they have never done before. And I expect the results of that to be released and and for there to be more discussion about what we can do. I don't know if anyone's seen any documentaries on Netflix, but there's this visual that I can't get out of my head of the Arctic just like shrinking over decades in a time lapse. So I am very scared and um, I am fascinated to see what the Arctic brings us (laughs) this year. 
Yeah. I wish I remember the documentary. There's one chasing ice. That's the one. Thank you. My, it has some of the most terrifying visuals. It's, you know, it's, it's it's, stunning and scary at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it, it gives a sense of the scale without it being overly, you know, it's not overly teachy. It's really just relies on a lot of visual. It's just visual. Yeah, it's just visual. The, like, all I can see is the the earth and then the Arctic, like, ice just going like this, like, really, really big to, like, really, really small. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I'm. I, that was one of the few climate change documentaries that has left an impact on me. Chasing Ice, I think some of the visuals specifically were seared into my brain. Yeah. And I have one more thing that I hope people will pay attention to. And unfortunately, it ends uh, this segment on a very sad note. But I wouldn't be a reporter if I didn't end up, the, you know, with a reality check. So for those of you who haven't been paying attention to the world, but Bangladesh is home to a million Rohingya refugees. Um, and, and they have been sort of home housed in this very in, in what has been called the world's largest refugee camp. Bangladesh is now moving this group of Rohingya refugees. The numbers uh, vary, but the, the latest statistics suggest about 2,000 refugees from these very cramped camps in Cox's Bazar to a remote island in the Bay of Bengal called uh, Bahshanchar, or which, which translates to floating island. This island was once regularly submerged by monsoon rains. The island is hours by boat from the mainland, 34 kilometers away to be precise. It is flood prone, vulnerable to frequent cyclones, and could be completely submerged during a high tide. Here's the kicker. The island surfaced only 20 years ago and was never inhabited. One can only imagine the impact climate change and, and, you know, the consequences of climate change from raging seas to um, just unpredictable weather could have on an island like this that is home to thousands of refugees with very, I, I imagine, nothing to do to protect themselves. We have to understand that climate change is, has, it do, isn't restricted to any borders. It's literally everywhere. And impacts our, our seas in a way that we're still trying to understand. And here we are talking about an island that only appeared 20 years ago and is inhabiting a lot of people who are in very precarious conditions. I'm hoping that something will be done to, to protect them and, and to keep them safe. But until then, uh, let's not forget that climate change isn't limited to the United States or Canada. It is literally around the world. Yeah. And and furthermore, that it affects consistently the most vulnerable, you know, right? Like you know, the Rohingya refugees are perhaps, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in the world, right? They're, they're currently mostly stateless. They're, they're trying to find their footing and being moved to a place that to be at complete climate risk, right? Like it is a, a cyclone coming there would be, would be a devastation. Yep. And so, yeah, like this is this is I think to me the kinds of stories where it cements the fact that climate justice is the only way forward because just tackling climate change in 20 years does not help these people. We need more to than that. More that. than that, Stefan. It's just we can't just talk about climate change as a as a financial thing anymore. We can't just talk it talk about it as a in our backyards thing anymore, right? Like this is hurting people who literally have no control over their own lives. And and if, if this is done, they won't even have control over their deaths, to be quite blunt. Yeah. And, and I think that's what we have to keep in mind, that it 
doesn't go away. Climate change does not go away. And our efforts need to include people who don't have a voice, who can't say to their governments, who don't even have governments to say like, hey, do not put me at risk to climate change because the Rohingya refugees can't do that. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Fatima, thank you so much for the positivity and the reality check. <laughs> I feel like that's, you know, if, if that is not the work of a reporter to both bring people, you know, a, a way forward, but also to remind us of the world that is, is, I don't know what is. So thank you so much, Fatima Syed. Catch, catch you on Twitter and all the other places that you will be showing up. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.